I looked at my life, and I guess influenced by martial arts and the role models that I'd had, and thought, it's got to be purposeful. Everything, if I'm doing something that's not purposeful and not adding value to the world, then I'm wasting my time. And I've only got a short, all have this short life. And so I will not waste one more minute. Welcome back or welcome to another episode of the Success Times Happiness Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Thompson. Today, we have David Dangerfield on the show, a name probably not synonymous to the household, but David has an amazing story. He's a CEO of Compass, a very well-known charity here on the Sunshine Coast that helps people with intellectual and physical disabilities and brings out their most potential to become an asset to society and not a liability. But David's charity is only a small element of his life and and what he stands for. And we get into that, into this conversation, and I really hope uh, you enjoy it. So here's David. David Dangerfield, thank you so much for coming in and being part of the podcast. My pleasure. You are the founder and head of... Compass, award-winning charity here on the Sunshine Coast. In your words, as the founder, what what is it today? Today, it would be best described as a social enterprise. So by that, I mean something uh, a for-purpose organisation that um, with minus the commercial imperative, and it has uh, uh, provides support to young people with intellectual and physical disabilities post-secondary school mostly, or nowadays also having an outreach to students that, uh, who might be attending special schools or special ed units. Um, we now have five sites from Caboolture through to Gympie, the learning and development hubs, and a number of micro-enterprises that include things like Compass Farm, um, four cafes, a retail outlet, a commercial kitchen, a couple of woodworks, centres, a pottery and and lawn and garden business, all sorts of things. I lose track. <laughs> and the drive for you presently with, I guess, empowering those individuals with disability, how would you describe that? Australia doesn't do this very well. A long time ago, I studied overseas and worked in this field. And when I came back to Australia, I saw that we still had what's largely a babysitting service that frees up families, and that's a good thing. Um, but it didn't explore the potential of these human beings and relegated them to a you know, kind of minor role in, in life. What I'd been exposed to was a pathway that we take for granted which is one of further education, skills-based training, and then vocational opportunity. So I wanted to bring that to the Australian landscape and let people see that when you invest in people with intellectual impairment in particular, by providing that pathway, that they'll move along it at their own pace. And, of course, the people that we support at Compass, some of those people 
their journey is not as uh, far-reaching as that of others. It, it depends. They may have much higher needs around health, well-being, therapy, etc. Mm. Um, for the vast majority, however, they have opportunities to explore a, <clears throat> a much richer future. And so they just tread that path like you and I and everybody else did. In Australia, there was a demarcation, and it still largely exists, between education and disability. So there was a line in the sand. You've had your education. And I've had people in the disability world, you know, tasked with representing them in the form of government reps, et cetera, tell me that. Mm. Um, you've had your education. Um, and I dispute that education should finish there, that learning and development, growth, personal growth should finish at that point and that we shouldn't be funding that. It can't be accidental though. Learning learning needs to be structured mm. and so we try to provide that structured pathway so that it identifies people's capacities mm -hmm. and their passions, interests, and it explores those things in, in ways that engage a person whose intellectual capacity may not be the same as yours and mine, um, but it still excites them and makes them want to dig deeper into, into how to have that knowledge and what to do with that knowledge. So, as I said, Australia has not done that particularly well and we still don't do it very well at all. And so I wanted to bring that, that pathway to people and, and then use it, use it as a model to demonstrate that when you engage people with intellectual impairment on that pathway, that they become contributors to society. When you have a scheme like the NDIS, so the National Disability Insurance Scheme, it's, it's an, A, it's an insurance scheme and B, it came from Productivity Commission, so you've got kind of the wrong birth <laughs> happening there largely. Um, it's coming, something good came out of for all the wrong reasons. Mm. So economic participation is one of the things that the scheme talks about a great deal and there are markers for that. And I don't object to that being a marker, but it's far from the only marker of a rich life, as you and I both know. Um, so, and it, it can be disguised as well, mm. what, is, what does economic participation mean? So I think there are other markets that are equally or even more important that help determine what a, a rich, purposeful life looks like. And so I encourage uh, through Compass for us to explore that as well. The upshot of that is that it gives an opportunity for community, for society to recognise, to sit back and go, hey, hang on a minute, there's an enormous value in the way that these people approach their life. Um, I think one of the things that I saw and heard most through that whole COVID thing was, um, gee, human connection is really important. Being around good people, being kind to each other and being around good people has real value. And what I would say is that people with an intellectual disability, largely speaking, have that capacity inherently. Mm -hmm. So they have all those attributes that we come to admire. They're, they're kind. They're not judgmental. They're present. They're present, yeah. When you're talking with them, mm. they are authentic mm -hmm. and they're, they're not going to um, hold back in what they say or think, mm -hmm. um, but they're going to be gentle. 
and they're going to love you from the beginning uh, and they're going to, you know, care how you feel all the time. Where's society falling down when those people have the traits that able-bodied society members desire, yet there is some stigmatism to how much someone with a disability can actually uh, input into back into mm, society. Mm. Where is the breakdown there, do you think? It's, it's easy. Um, there is an implicit assumption, an unquestioned, unchallenged assumption that disability equals liability. Liability requires some type of welfare solution and there's something wrong with those people. We've forever viewed disability under a medical model. And it's only much more recently that we're going, hang on, intellectual disability is not a medical issue. It's, it's something else. And as we put aside that whole medical model, um, then we can challenge that, that implicit assumption. We can go, well, hang on, what if they weren't a liability? And that's, that's the question from which I started was, what if they weren't a liability? What if we could view them as a human being and like any human being, an asset. Mm. So a, a diamond in the rough, perhaps, mm. as you know, we all are in some way. <laughs> yes. um, and so what would it take to help unlock the asset? Mm. And that's really simple. That, that's such a simple formula because it is further education, skills-based training, vocational opportunities, inclusion, um, valuing those people looking at them as an asset and valuing the things, hey, hang on, I really enjoy being around them. Hey, hang on, I smile a lot when I'm with people, uh, these, these guys, and I get perspective on my life when I'm with them. Mm. I, I can see I should feel grateful mm. for all the things I've got. They're grateful. Mm. Then, you know, and even it's not only, not only intellectual disabilities. I've had a lot to do with people with physical disabilities, young people who've been in my world, um, you know, I'm thinking of a 13 or 14-year-old man way back um, who'd had 20-odd operations. He had a shunt in his head. He had spina bifida, so his legs were underdeveloped. He was in a wheelchair. And his mum rang me uh, out of the blue. This is, got 25 years ago. And said, oh, I've got a son with spina bifida. He's in a wheelchair. He'd like to learn martial arts. Um, would you accept him? And I said, of course bring him to the dojo, let's, let's see. And she burst into tears and said, are you okay? And she said, well, I, I, I can't tell you how many people I've phoned and tried to get my son involved in martial Something. arts and they all tell me no. Mm. Um, so, of course, he came down, he trained with me for some years, I introduced him to his heroes, Paralympic athletes. He took up wheelchair basketball. Um, you know, there's, anyway, it's, that's another, another thing, mm. but it's not only in those people with intellectual impairment, it's people with physical disabilities who automatically start with all these challenges and then climb straight over the top of them. Mm. And I admire those people so very much, you know. Um, I'm digressing here a little bit, but the other day I was out at Compass Farm. We were showing some, had about 100 people out there for a kind of a, a team building e day and there was a, a gentleman there, an older gentleman named Cecil, and Cecil, uh, I introduced to these guys as my hero. I said, this is my hero, Cecil. I, I just adore him. Cecil wears a teddy bear around on a strap around his neck and secured around his belt. 
And he has that teddy bear wherever he goes. So when he gets up and dresses, he puts that teddy bear on. And I said, when I grow up, I want to be as authentic and fearless as Cecil. I want to be able to strap a teddy bear on my chest and just go out and do my day. Yeah. You know, this is, it's so good. Mm. I love it. We have a mutual friend and, and that's Pep and he said, you've got to go out to Compass Farm and, and, and speak to David. And I knew of Compass and the work you guys have done in the Sunshine Coast. Um, and so I went out there. Fortunately, it's only down the road, so about mm. 15 minutes away. But uh, drove down there and it was, it was all very, very impressive. Um, and that's only one campus that you guys have. And then we got to talking. We got we got talking, and it became very obvious very quickly that Compass is only a small bit of what makes you you. Everything underpinning everything that I could see from our discussion was that you're driven to find potential in everybody, and mm-hmm. the way that I and and that's a, a very common place for me as well, and to help others find their potential. And for me, it's, this is the, and we talked about this, that this is the standard and I want to get people above that. And certainly for people with um, intellectual or physical disabilities, they're below the bar and I guess compass is driven to get them up to the standard. But what was incredibly in, impressive for me is when we just when we talked about life generally is how much is underpins your existence through your experiences with martial arts mm. something as, as as enormous and as impactful as as compass as a charity that you created and run and 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 head you would be forgiven to think that that could be your entire existence and that's who you are and what you do and it's but it was it was so obvious to me that this is only a very small speck of what motivates you and understanding that you are one of the highest ranking athletes in in martial arts that you can be, that you can be and it's been obviously such an imperative part of your your whole life i would love you to take me back to when you got into it, why that became such an important part of your life. As a young man, I played a lot of sport and primarily uh, team sport was rugby league. And when I was coming to the end of my schooling, I thought, uh, you know, I spoke to my football coach who was kind of like, you know, God. Um, (laughs) And I had thought of perhaps considering rugby league as some sort of career and my grandfather had played rugby league and rugby union for Australia way back. And so he was my other hero. And I, so, you know, I'd, I had a football in my hands when I could stand. Mm. Um, and I wanted to, I, I, I thought, no, I wonder, and, and he said, there's no career in that. Uh, you know, that's not a career. And so I spoke to my coach and he said, mm, well, maybe you should do martial arts. And to this day, I have no idea why he said that mm. or what he knew about martial arts. It was, you know, just an extraordinary thing. In Australia in those days, um, there was a bit of karate and there was a bit of judo and probably that was about it. But, you know, your football coach says, you know, well, you're finishing school. You know? So I went home, got the phone book out, 
and looked up martial arts and uh, there was a school not that far away so I, I went and it taught a, a combination of karate and jujitsu uh, and so I went and it was ridiculously repetitive and boring and you know I would look across the room uh, and there would be people doing all these wonderful things but I was made to walk up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down doing all these very basic things and then it was now you're going to learn to fall and so you're going to throw yourself every which way and and here are mats and here's a vaulting horse and here's a spring and and so now you're going to do this and so I did that while gazing over at all these people who were doing interesting things. And eventually, maybe about six months in, I got invited over to the other side and started doing learning interesting something. Things. Yeah, yeah, learning something. But, yeah, you know, I was with that gentleman for about three years and uh, we would sit, he would sit and um, hold court at the end of the evening. And one night he said, oh, you know, oh, well, I just do that to get rid of the the people I don't want to teach. So that, that whole process of all those months, and I was like, bastard. <laughs> <laughs> um, in my head, obviously, not yeah, out loud. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, but anyway, I really enjoyed it. And I, there's something, I'm, I'm not going to say there was any deep philosophy in those days. I was a young guy. I just wanted to kick ass. Mm. Um, I wanted to be fit and physical. And, you know, I was used to contact from a life of rugby league. So... Um, I just thought this is, you know, let's go smash bodies. And, um, and so it was no more, no more yeah, deep or meaningful than, than no. that, just a, a really fun physical pursuit that, that challenged my head because it was all limits as well, you know. It's like, can you do this? Well, let's see. Mm. And will you allow your mind to roll away and get bored or will you be able to keep focused? And, and so I guess uh, without any specific kind of direction you if you if you just given the right framework and the atmosphere then you just follow it and it leads somewhere mm. so i went from there to some other I, I did some i did a bit of boxing when i was a kid and so I, I came across some people who did a thing called chinese boxing and so i started doing that for a few years and i really enjoyed that as well basically it's because one of them handed my ass to me um, and I went, okay, there's something about this. I've got to sort this out. Yep, yeah, yep, got to go check this out. And I got hooked into that for a while. And somewhere in there, in my head, I started to invent a perfect martial art. So I started to see it in terms of principles and combative logic and stuff like this and so I thought the perfect martial art is going to have this and it's going to look like this and it's going to feel like that and and some you know I would have some names for some of those principles and you know silly things I call one principle is the jelly bean principle you don't want to even know right but it's just that you know you're trying to build a framework in your mind and then I saw an, a demonstration of something and I thought it looked fake. Um, to be honest, I just looked and went, mm, really? Mm. Um, but it intrigued me because I saw some of those principles that I'd been inventing in this practice. And then the time came around, I, I was um, doing a bit of part-time teaching of the art for, you know, for fun and of my, my previous um, sort of combat 
training was, was, was sharing that. Mm. Um, and then I saw that a person was teaching this, this um, other art called Aikido in a, a local hall. And so I went and it was a female who was not qualified. She was just a student, but she was doing her best, you know, and, and had this little rented hall and where there'd been a, some old guys doing some judo and stuff a couple of nights a week. And I, I went and I realised she's not very, you know, um, particularly skilled or anything like that, but I'm still intrigued by what's happening. So I want to have a look at it. And she left after about a year and another guy came and he wasn't very skilled either, but I could see behind them there was some stuff and so I, I stuck at it mm. and then another he left and another guy came and he wasn't very skilled either um, but again I just kept chasing this thing that you know I could see I was reading about the philosophy of the art I could see this this thing in the background of of superb ways of using a, a body mm-hmm. and of, um, of, of mental focus and of use of energy and, you know, and, and efficiency and effectiveness and sophistication and all of these, these things that were, you know, I could, lurking in the background. Um, and eventually um, that last person left and uh, the, I was, by that time I was the senior person in that group and the student said, oh, you know, well, he's gone, um, why don't you teach? And I said, no, I'm, I'm not here to teach, I don't want to teach, I, I want to learn. Mm. Um, and they said, well, can't you do something? I said, look, if I can find somebody who inspires me in this art, who I think's actually got it, then I'll stay. I'll learn from them and I'll keep sharing with you and we'll, we'll work together. Mm. Um, and by all those things, that synchronicity, serendipity, whatever you want to call it, of course, I, I found that person um, and he remains one of my best friends, probably my best friend to this day. And so we've, you know, this is 35 years ago, something like that. Um, and I looked into his, you know, of course, he shared his background with me. I learned a great deal from him and I could see that where he had gone, where he got his stuff, he had studied with his uncle in Malaysia for, uh, from the time he was a kid. And I met his uncle and he was extraordinary. But by that time, he's also saying, well, I know you think I'm good and I know you think he's good, but you got to go to Japan. And so I did. So I went to a place called the Yoshinkan Honbu Dojo in Japan, which is probably the premier martial arts dojo in the world, was. And I went there at the time of kind of its golden years mm-hmm. when the very best, the, the master was still alive, the very, very best were there. And what they did that was different was they knew how it worked and they would show you very precisely your toe this way, not that way, your finger this way, your elbow here, pull this muscle down here. Um, and in enormous detail, mechanical detail, be able to just take me from there to there in very short time, as long as you're willing to do the work. How long were you in Japan for? I was um, on and off in Japan. I couldn't stay because I was working here. Um, so I would go over for weeks or I think the longest time over there was a couple of months. And But I went, I, know, I 
stopped counting at about 30 trips. Wow. So a lot. Yeah. And for, you know, I wasn't wealthy by any means. And I was eating rice balls and uh, living wherever I could on the floor of people's houses yes. over there. Um, and some, But I, I made some wonderful friends, some foreign guys and some Japanese guys who looked after me. The teachers were incredible to me. And I affiliated my school with them and uh, my the headmaster licensed me to have that dojo as part of his group. It's like a, just a big family. You know, mm. they, um, the, it really is like a big family. That you, you, The license that I got from him was um, we've got to get to know you. That means we're going to beat you up and see how you take that. We're going to go drinking and we're going to see how you take that. And we're, we're going to train your ass off and we're just going to see how you take that. And, oh, you took it just fine. Okay, here's a license. Yeah. Um, because, and it's a life license. It's, this will never be rescinded. We, we get you now. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, you know, I became part of that group and I was with that group for over 20 years. Um, wonderful, just wonderful because they really, really knew. And... I, I started roaming around a little bit inside Japan. I found some other people that I connected with who also had high levels of mastery in that art, but they were approaching it from slightly different directions. And then I had the great good fortune. I was actually in Australia and I was teaching a seminar down in Sydney and a friend of mine rang me and said, oh, when you finish, come up uh, to this this place in North Sydney. There's a gentleman here who's uh, headmaster of uh, an old um, art, a uh, koryu art, so old school art, teaching uh, Japanese swordsmanship and ancillary weapons and stuff. And he's a freak. You you want to see this guy? And by this time, I'd seen pretty much everything. Everything can be seen. Yep. Yeah. And. I went into that hall and I sat down in Japanese style on the wood floor with my student and I watched this guy and 20 minutes in I went, who do I have to kill to get close to this man? <laughs> wow. He was insane, just insane. In his 70s, oh, I've never seen anything like it with a, with a weapon. Mm. Moved similarly to the headmaster of the Ocean Khan so I could look at the way he used his body and go, that's there's some stuff there. Mm. Um, his power from this tiny little person was insane. And so I, I, at the end, you know, he saw me sitting there for a long time, Japanese style on a wooden floor, which is not comfortable, and he couldn't help but go, hang on, you must be, nobody sits like that for that. That's legs under, yeah. calves under thighs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it, my friend, um, Bought that got the teacher at that place to bring him over to meet me, and or for me to meet him, and uh, you know I introduced myself and spoke a little Japanese, and he's like, oh yeah, what do you do, you know? And my friend said, oh, he's an Aikido teacher, um, he's got a school in Queensland, and he said, oh, is what what is that? I said, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's a full time school, Yoshinkan, Humbo. He's like, oh okay, yeah, I've heard of Shoto Sensei and. Um, said, oh, have you, do you know a man named, the equivalent of Mr. Smith, do you know a man named Mr. Smith in Queensland? <laughs> uh, of course I did. Right. And so I was able to say, yes, I do. He said, oh, he's probably not told you, but he's one of my live-in students many years ago. Um, so seeing as you know him, why don't you come and train with me? And in, so I next trip to Japan, I went and started studying with him and stayed with him until he passed. 
Yeah, right. Uh, and so I've had, just had this extraordinary good fortune. Were you, when you went over that time and studied with him, was that solely on the swordsmanship auxiliary uh, no, weapons? I trained sort of different? five to eight hours during the day at the Oshikan Hombu and then go across town to see him and we'd train for a few hours in the evening um, and that became my daily pattern. So, you know, 11 and 12-hour day was normal. Where does that drive come from? Because you're not... It's not like you're spending 12 hours climbing a corp, you know, working at a corporation, climbing the ladder because you want something, golden handcuffs or material wealth. It's what's driving you for that so many years of perfecting a particular art. Where is, where is the motivation coming from? I get to know myself. You know, I get to understand myself and my my capacities and my in your twenties, that's an evident that's that's not reflection, right? That's not you saying mm-hmm. at this stage of your life you can reflect and go, "That's what I was doing." But do, mm-hmm. was it an actual present feeling that that's totally. what, that's what you were doing? Yeah, totally. I look at um, I, I make this joke these days that uh, uh, people ask me about compass, and I go, "Yeah, that's my hobby." <laughs> your hobby what's your profession I say I'm a martial artist mm. and and that's actually probably closest to the truth, truth. My profession what I believe I'm best at is as a martial artist and martial arts athlete martial arts teacher mm-hmm. um, because I've been trained professionally to be a professional um, compass is an offshoot of that mm. and I love it to death it's it's completely founded on the principles of martial arts so but it's just you can't see them because you don't. People don't understand what's underneath, and but that's what drives it. All the kind of rules, mm. philosophy about compass stems from that. So talk to me about what are the principles? What what are the things? And I can imagine this is a how long is a piece of string sort of question. But if, what are the principles you take out of a life in martial arts? that the general population, the general person doesn't, hasn't experienced? One of my uh, Shota sensei used to talk about mindful mindlessness, mindless mindfulness. And, you know, what, what that references is a paradox. And so what I observe is that one of the greatest things at play in this world is a paradox. And I'm interested by paradox. In fact, that's probably the only thing that really interests me is any time... I see a paradox and I want to open that box and because that all the good things are in that space. Mm-hmm. And the conflicting nature. Yes. Yeah. Conf- well, what appears to be conflicting nature. Okay. Um, it's, you know, it's like a thing, it's like a circle. And so you go far enough around in this direction you and far enough in this direction, what seems to be instead of polar opposites, if you turn that line into a circle and these two points are right next to each other. So what look like the the either end so even that kind of polar opposite thing disappears because it's it's the view of i have of it it's like this Mm -hmm. rather than like this so and that's a one of the principles you might say is how to look at things and so yeah looking at things and observing the the universe at play through a different set of eyes um, having my eyes honed to see differently to, to look for different things and then what we look for we see. Um, so perspective, um, 
instinct. Mm. So it's, you know, the, the world that I train in is things happen too fast to, to use your mind to calculate anything. You, you, it forces me to become absolutely an instinctive being and to, to hone and then trust those instincts so that there's not a hair between the observation and the action that flow out of that. So this is another principle is take away the gaps, create flow, and flow is incredibly important. Um, it's everything, everything. So I want my day to flow. I want my life to flow. I work on the principle of anything that looks like it's going to be an obstacle to that flow, then I, I have to remove that mm-hmm. thing. And often those things aren't external. Often those things are internal. So I'm working internally to take out anything that feels clunky and be left with just, you know, there's a Japanese landscaping principle and it says you don't put things into a landscape to achieve perfection. You take all the unnecessary pieces out until what you're left with is just the zen. Mm-hmm. It's just the, the thing, the moment that the, the yeah, the essence, mm-hmm. the essence. And I guess that's where a lot of that connection with the hero nature of the the intellectual and physical people that you deal with, that they've got probably more flow. 100%. They're in more flow state than 100%. any of us. Mm-hmm. They're present. They're so yeah. grateful and mm. be, happy, be so happy to be here. Everything in their landscape that could just detract has well, probably wasn't there in the first place. But mm-hmm. It's not there to mm. be, there's nothing to be removed. Yeah, which is why I enjoy their company so much mm. and why I'm attracted to helping them in any way that I can and because I get as much from every interaction as they do, mm. um, it reinforces to me the nature of flow in that space, in that in that part of human interaction. And the genesis of Compass, though, wasn't there, was it? It wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, it didn't start with helping the disabled and finding that they are in fact diamonds in the rough. Mm-hmm. It started at schools. Yes, that's right. So when I made this brilliant financial decision. Um, the, I don't talk about this a lot, but I, I can tell you that I, I arrived at a point in my life where I'd been doing things. Uh, I'd been practicing martial arts. Um, I had a reasonably successful life, I, you know, in terms of, you know, a couple of little business, a bit of some money in the bank and stuff like that. And I looked at my life and I guess influenced by martial arts and the role models that I'd had and thought, it's got to be purposeful. Everything, if I'm doing something that's not purposeful and not adding value to the world, then I'm wasting my time. And I've only got a short, we all have this short life. Mm. And so I will not waste one more minute. So I will only get out of bed in the morning if it's purposeful. And so as a result, I didn't accept any work. Um, work was being offered to me and I turned it down and because it didn't light my fire and so my money was running out and my running out and running out <laughs> and you know I didn't start with a lot but it was it was going fast and I was literally arriving at a point where 
uh, I friend said to me, well, you can always, you know, it's, I see you, you're, we know you, you're a bit stuck. Um, like, you you know, you're not going to change, you're not going to give in. <laughs> um, so maybe you should take some unemployment benefits. I'm like, no, it's not, not how I play. Um, so I literally went out onto the veranda of the house that I lived at at the time and eyeballed the universe and I said, hey, you know, I want to do something. I want to only do things that add value and are, are purposeful. But you better pull your finger out and get behind me because I'm going to be sleeping in the gutter in a week's time. And so stop effing around and get on my team. And this is I, the conversation with the universe. Yeah. And you were that, you, in the time frame was that, that within mm-hmm. a short, very short period of time. Yeah. Something had to happen. Yeah. And you know, I, I don't believe in God. Um, I, I don't have a religious bone in my body. I'm probably anti-religious, if anything. Um, but I, I, I probably, you know, for want of a better word, I'd be described as a spiritual person. Mm-hmm. And I'm very open to that, that world. Um, so I wasn't having a chat with God. Um, and I wasn't waiting for God to save me. I believe that there's, there's a mind the universe, I observe that there is a mind and that it wants to, the universe wants to unfold in optimum ways and that's where flow lies, is when we find those, align our energies with those optimum opportunities to, for me and the universe get on the same wave. And so anyway, quite literally the next morning I received a phone call and it was so, you know, remember I'm, I'm a struggling martial arts teacher I've made this brilliant financial decision to, I will teach martial arts full-time, genius. <laughs> um, you know, I've got like three students coming in and the phone rang and it, it was an offer to um, teach a, a program at a local TAFE college for long-term unemployed youth. So these were 19 to 25-year-old people who had been unsocialised and, you know, had various um, backgrounds around, you know, alcohol and drug and crime and so on. But they were, they were looking to be picked up to, to reintegrate with further education and, and employment opportunities and so on. And so I was one of five people who the TAFE contracted to provide these bridging courses over eight weeks to them as part of kind of getting them across into these, uh, the next part of the program. Um, so after the first eight-week program, they dismissed the other four um, and kept me, and mainly because the people, I had made no bones of what I did during my day. Mm. So I said, yeah, well, let's go, jump in the bus, let's go out to the dojo, you can see what I do. Uh, and so they weren't going to mess with me, um, but they did mess with the others. And so there was, um, anyway, I inherited that, program so I'm doing that work for probably I don't know, three years I really liked it and that was supplementing my income well, my income <laughs> um, you know the handful of bucks that I was picking That's up from teaching martial arts mm-hmm. yep and and it was all about my own practice as well you know and um, I just looked at that and went you know what this is uh, that absolute ambulance ambulance at the bottom of the cliff these people are 19 to 25, they've gone through all this crap 
and landed at the bottom of the cliff. Nobody's doing anything about that. Mm. So I did some research. I spoke to some friends in education and we identified that there were a couple of places uh, where you could be impactful in the lives of those, those people if I met them when they were younger. And so I chose one of those places, which was year eight and nine, so 13 and 14, mm. and I saw it's primarily boys who are struggling. I'm a boy. I know how that works. Um, and I know, I know what young men want and value. And so I went to four local secondary schools and I spoke to them and said, I would like to um, offer you my services. I would like to run an eight-week program for the... I'd like you to give me the names of 14 to 16 young men in year eight and nine who you're about to expel. And I will take them three times a week here at the school and I'm going to teach them martial arts. And at the end of that time, if I have not succeeded in turning them around, then you don't have to pay my bill. So they kind of looked at that and went, oh, hang on, there's no downside here. Yeah, <laughs> what is the catch? <laughs> um, so I built out a program and the program was, was a whole pile of basic martial arts, Aikido training, mm. Not, not really martial arts, so generally, specifically Aikido training. And based on the study that I'd done in Japan, so it was hard ass. And, uh, you know, take these boys into a cage um, or an area at the school where we, we would wrestle up some mats mm. and there was a heavy life skills thread through it. Um, but it was also, you know, I had a friend of mine from the SAS who came and helped me with a couple of programs and he's gone, geez, man, I'd rather go train with the SAS and you and these schools, these <coughs> boys are, you're killing them. Yeah. But you know what? They just grew another leg. Those programs turned into something huge. So there were across the next 14 years or so, 7,000 young people went through those school programs. Wow. Um, they were fee-for-service basis, so, you know, it gave me something to do during the day. Mm -hmm. So my day was I would often teach at the dojo early morning class or do my own training then go out to schools for five, six hours, come back, lay my head down on a gi on the mat, have a 20-minute kip, mm -hmm. teach a kid's class, teach two adult classes, do my own training, go home, repeat. Wow. Um, but it was, I loved the work, mm. just loved the work. And those, many of those young men just came to the dojo when their course finished. Sure. And, of course, it grew from young men to also um, enrichment, programs post those intensive behaviour, well, I was calling them, in, this is an intensive behaviour modification program, I wasn't putting any bells and whistles on it, we will be changing how you behave. Yeah. Um, and on the principles of yeah. Akato. Yeah. You're going to change how you behave yeah. and you're going to want to do it for these reasons. And, you know, people would, I'd, I'd interview parents and they'd say, um, you're never going to get my son into this program. Mm. And... I was like, oh, what's that? Well, he won't do anything like this. And, okay. Um, so I would go from there to the interviews and I would sit down and I'd go, do you know who I am? i go, yes, we, we, we've heard you've run these programs in schools, you teach martial arts. i go, you have five minutes to impress the shit out of me. Go. And, and they'd be like, what do you mean? I said, you're wasting time. <laughs> Tell me why I should take you into my program. Mm. And they'd be like, well, uh, well, I, 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 and away it would go. Mm. And, of course, we'd walk back into the parent meeting later and go, well, yep, part of it. they're all in. Mm. And they'd be like, what the hell do yeah. you say in there, you know? But it's 
that was how it was. Uh, usually I'd have 20 people, so I'd say there are 20 names. Mm. I'm going to take 14. I'm going to kick two of you out in the first week. So let's, let's roll. For all of your adult life, you've honed a craft that is, for lack of a better description, sharpening a knife that you can use to kill. But I would suspect the greater strength is to have complete control over that knife. Mm. And it's not the sharp, it's not the, the beauty of it isn't how sharp your knife is, but it's how the amount of control you have over that weapon. Mm. How much is that underpinning what you do in the dojo? And how much of that do you think impacted the kids mm. in that program? I talk about a principle in Japanese. They say satsu jinken and katsu jinken. So these mean killing sword or life-giving sword. So it's the sword is the sword and it is how you use it that's important, how you, how you see it and how you apply it. Um, the same thing is it's still the sword. It, it will never change. It's nature. It's, it was born to kill and that's what it's purpose always was um, but you can use it to give life rather than take life i would talk to those boys i would take an old sword that i have I, I have a very old sword in my collection and it is i would explain how it was made and they could touch something that is the essence of of great craftsmanship um, it it is a perfect killing implement at the same time as it is a beautiful work of art. Mm -hmm. It sits in both spaces at absolutely perfectly at the same time. Mm. So it's how you look at it. And I would explain that it, it would start off as a piece of ore dug out of the ground and that would go to the swordsmith's uh, forge and they would undergo a, a lengthy ritual with the swordsmith and, and his assistants um, a of kind of a almost religious type of significance um, to prepare themselves to take the work with this piece of ore and unveil what's inside it. And so they would, um, in a short version, they would heat and beat that piece of ore into shape over time in a forge. And it was a process of, of refining and removing the elements that weren't part of the sword. So they'd be cutting it out, they'd be hammering it, belting it, mm. heating it, belting it, heating it, folding it, belting it, um, until it took the shape of a piece of, a long piece of metal. And then they would start to, to f polish or fine-tune fine that thing mm. um, to determine which side was going to be the blade and which side is the back. Eventually it would have something that was straight that looked like a, uh, a sword, basically, and they would cover it in clay and then they would take a fine implement and they'd scrape the clay off along the blade side. And in doing so, they would be drawing pictures. There are a whole variety of ways of doing that that are in themselves an art. And the, the weapon would then be heated in this, baked in this clay the clay would protect everything apart from the pieces that were exposed where this the drawing 
was along the length of the blade. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you've seen the movies, it looks like a wave. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just a, a facsimile of what is uh, what it can be, and there are a myriad of, of actual artworks that are drawn <coughs> along the side of the sword, along the ha, along the blade. And then they would cl- take the clay off quickly and thrust it into a barrel of water. And if they had done it properly, then the blade would start straight and then it would arc in exactly the, the place that they chose it to and to the degree that they chose it to because the, the clay was protecting the back of the sword and ch- keeping a different temperature. Right. And if it was done properly, mm-hmm. then you would be left with something that looked like a sword. They would carve a tang, so the piece where the handle is going to go over the, the end, and then they would polish this thing. I'm not sharpen. They never talk about sharpening. They talk about polishing. polishing. And this is, again, a, just a different approach mm. to, to something you, um, I don't know. I, I, there are some things you shouldn't even try to explain, but there is a, a, a difference in when you polish something as opposed to when you sharpen it. So sharpening people isn't what I do. Polishing people is what I do. Mm-hmm. And so I would say this is just like your training. Um, you, I'm going to heat you and beat you <laughs> and I'm going to yeah. fold you up and, and then we're going to turn you into the – we're going to reveal the person inside, the sword inside you, mm. and that will be you. And every one of those is unique and you, we will polish you so that you can be truly appreciated as uh, the best person that you can be. You can become your ideal self. You, you reveal – your essence mm. through the process of training. And actually this is, of course, what martial arts, traditional martial arts seeks to do, mm. is to reveal the essence of the person, polish it, and then put it in place. So it can sit on a stand and live just like my sword does, or it can be picked up and, and utilised in, in if you know what you're doing with that thing. Um, so that's that's humans, isn't it? You know? mm. And I wouldn't say that looking at it is better than and killing with it, they're the same. And to your point, the use of that is neither good or bad. Mm. It just is. Yeah. If your heart's pure, mm. then you, you'll kill when, you, when that's the right thing to do and you'll, you'll sit back and appreciate when that's the right thing to do. Why is it, do you think, that you were able to, from a relatively young age, be able to be so introspective enough and see that this is a journey of self-discovery and not be caught up in I think there's a lot of people that don't really know who they are mm-hmm. or don't want to even go down that path and a lot of also a lot of people that are on that journey and still don't really know or it's a it's a life it's a lifelong journey of figuring out who they are mm-hmm. why is it do you think <clears throat> you are so willing to understand yourself from a, from a relatively young age? Using a different muscle. So I think what we tend to do is intellectualise our experiences, try and put them in some sort of framework where there are words. If you open the, the book that, um, that traditional martial arts is written in, you're going to find an empty book because it's not... Um, an intellectual exercise. You can be given mechanics that you work with, so mm. words will be used for some of that. 
Um, but those words are like keys to unlock a whole room. And in that room is nothing except experience. So you will now just have experience. My teacher used to say to me um, that you, you train and something will arrive whole. You won't, you won't think your way to it. You won't approach it in, in intellectual um, assumptions or pieces. When you allow yourself to, to just purely have it, the experience, then something will arrive and it will arrive whole. And what you must do then when that thing arrives is hold it lightly and don't try and understand it. Don't try and reduce it to a set of thoughts or, un, you know, intellectualise it. Just let it be. Hold it lightly and let it be and let it sit into you and you will become that thing. When you intellectualise it, it will become an appendage of you. It will be a skill that sits outside you and you'll be able to talk about it, but you won't be it. So to be changed by it, to, to grow in, instead of kind of having a, a person like this and there's a skill here and there's a skill here and there's a skill here as appended to a person, mm. um, what happens is the person just grows to mm. them. They are those they things. They are those things. And so this is, it's a different way of approaching becoming Mm. or of integrating information because it's not really information. And he said the worst thing that I could do as a teacher was to then try and explain it, reduce it, and try and explain it to other people. On an intellectual level. Yeah. Mm. What I have to do is create an opportunity for people to relive that experience and let let it arrive for them. And then we don't sit and talk about it because it's... You just be it. Yep. As soon as, you, as soon as you talk about it or intellectualise it, you're no longer it. It's externalised, mm. yeah. So it's an interesting thing. You know, I have um, some wonderful students over the years and colleagues and friends um, who've been with me for a very long time. And, you know, I count them now very much as colleagues. We're all students. Um, I just happen to be the steward at the moment Um and, you know, struggling to do my best. I wish my teacher was still alive because, of course, he was vastly better than me um, and better at doing that as well. Mm. So, you know, I've still got a lot of growth to go through. Um, but we try not to intellectualise those things. We, we try not to have deep, meaningful discussions ab- about it because it's reducing it to intellectual concepts in, in some way. Um, so I, I think we what we have in common is we can kind of look at each other and go, mm, yeah, waggle of the head and mm-hmm. yep, it's there, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, that's enough. That's mm-hmm. that's enough community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like. That. I really like that. And then, so when did the when did you morph? Or when did you start? Where did the calling come with Compass as it is now? When did you see? At what point did you say um, that disability sector needs my involvement? No, that's – I would love to go, oh, my goodness, that was just part of my strategy. Um, that would be absolute rubbish. <laughs> um, you know, retrospect is a wonderful thing for putting meaning on things where there was no meaning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll dodge that, <laughs> that mistake. Um, it, all that happened was the phone rang again, uh, and this time it was – 
some people at a local special school who said, oh, look, we've heard about you, we've heard about the programs that you run in schools. Um, we have people with intellectual and physical disabilities who also exhibit challenging behaviour. Um, would you be able to help them? And I said, well, actually, yeah, I, I've studied and worked in that field and I would love to do that. So I went and started conducting modified versions of those programs at a couple of local special schools. And what that did was it put me in conversation with the teachers, with the young people, with their families, and I went, hmm, you know, here we are. Australia hasn't moved anywhere. Um, I now have this successful little not-for-profit organisation built around me, some good people, so um, let's design let me let me take out of myself what I understand the best possible service might look like, and I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down and put it into a series of policies and procedures and create some forms and stuff like that. So 2002, I did that and applied to Disability Services Queensland to register a post school service for people with intellectual impairment, and they sent you know at the end of the year when I got my application together, they sent a a gentleman to have a conversation with me and review my application and he literally took a pen out of his pocket and was crossing out words like education, training, work, etc. And I said, what are you doing? This is the person who's in charge yeah. of basically yeah. funding yeah. for disability. Yeah. yeah, he was a senior person and he said, well, that, he is a, a person who, the second person who sat in my office in 15 years and said, but they've had their education. And what we had next was a very robust conversation <laughs> that was fairly short and pointed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, started with words like, you're a disgrace. <laughs> and we went down from there. Mm. Um, so anyway, I put the application in. It got through, you know, they passed it. And we started in 2003 with uh, one of my students and was, um, uh, you know, central in some of these things and myself. And, you know, that's, that's where it started. So two of those three young people still attend Compass 20, 20 what the heck is it, 20 years later? Yeah. yeah 21 years later. Yeah. Um, and so those three young people are now 170 something young people and, you know, five sites. And we were under the dojo. So under my little dojo in Palmwoods, there's no running water. The toilets were out the back. Um, furniture and cutlery and crockery I stole from my home when my wife wasn't looking. Um, you know, just the most basic, humble mm. origins. But I had a plan. I knew what I was doing. And so delivering proper lessons and assessing those people, providing reports and feedback, um, structured learning. Mm. So, and, of course, in no time, away we rolled. Other families start, you know, they just embrace the dream. What if my son or daughter could actually be more mm. than, than I have thought? And so often, I remember the very the end of the first year, I assembled the or invited the three families to come in and chat with me. I said, well, you've seen year one. What would you like us to do in year two? And they clearly had a, a little chat and decided this gentleman, Phil, was going to be the spokesperson. They kind of stepped back and left Phil there and he said, well, we've talked about it. And what we realised is that we are one of the greatest impediments in the lives of our children. Um, we, uh, we had some goals for them that were really tenuous sort of, I wonder if... And you've kicked all of them 
they're, they're all gone. So what we wanted to say is we're in your hands. So you tell us what our children are capable of. And we've gone forward from there. As in the goals were too low. Yes. Yeah, yeah they, they were, they're setting their sights way too low. Mm. And their children, me, their children had surpassed that. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, this is the thing. It's not about me. Um, compass is not about compass. Compass is a, a showcase. Mm. It's a, a shop window that allows people to see themselves and people with disabilities in a different way. So it's that's the primary thing here. Is it's it's all about unveiling this um, potential. What would you say to people who want to find their potential, or and then maybe a a bit reluctant to open that that jar, that box? I'd say a couple of things. I'd say one, life is short. You don't know how long you've got. Um, so don't waste it. Don't waste a second of it. Second thing I think I'd say is look inside. Don't look outside. Nobody else has got the answers to who you are. Um, listen to yourself. Listen, listen to the little voice inside and don't judge what it says. Don't go, oh, my gosh, when it says that, I must be weak um, or I must be... Um, afraid, or I must. I lack all these things. Um, don't listen to those bits. Listen to the voice that says, hmm, "What if? What if? What about those? That one time where I was I was in a school concert and I felt awesome about myself, or I I won a race when I was six at school and I felt amazing. Look for that thing that and." Let that rise up inside yourself, those, those tiny little times. And it could have been just where, you know, a time when you weren't afraid mm. and you did something. Um, and relive and reconnect with those things and let them become the centre. Realise that's who you are. That's your potential. The rest of the stuff around there isn't you at your best. Don't judge it. Just let it go and focus on the times when you're at your best relive those things, feel the energy of them, and then look for the opportunity to be that person in the very next moment you possibly can be. Um, that's a really good answer. <laughs> um, this has been really special, David, and I really appreciate your time. Um, the At the end of... of uh, a conversation we ask or I ask the guests a couple of quick fire questions, which I haven't prepped you for, which I've prepped every single guest before it. But I, after speaking with you, I thought I don't need to at all prep you. First question is <clears throat> what would be one tip that you would give somebody who's looking to be more successful in their life? Ask yourself what success means. How are you going to measure yourself? I want to give you a longer answer to this because I was involved for some years in a thing called the TAFE Work Skills Foundation. There's a trade Olympics every two years where people from all walks of life, from hairdressing to bricklaying, go through regional and then state and national competitions. And then they have an international Olympics, um, the trade Olympics. And so I was a mentor in, uh, invited into a small group of people who, who mentored those people in the prep mm. and then post those competitions. I remember a, a lady 
and she had been in a couple of previous trade Olympics and she had come second in those competitions. And in the preliminary, I had this conversation with her and she said, you know, I always come second. Okay. Um, well, let's, I, I don't care about that. Um, let's get in touch with you when you're at your best. What do you do? And, and so, you know, I gave whatever advice I could. Um, she went over, she competed, and she, we, we got together um, some months later for the, the wrap-up after the competition. And if you can imagine a big room, we're all sitting around this sort of you, and, and I'm, I'm at one station, and she came around and she was furious. And she said, you know, I'm so effing over this. Um, I came second again. You know, I did everything you said. I did everything here that everybody else said. Um, I worked on myself so damn hard and I still came second. She was outraged. She was really crying out, you know, talking very loudly, yelling, um, swearing, tears in her eyes. And, and I was just, couldn't help myself. I just started smiling more and more and more at her. The more she raved, the more I was smiling. And uh, partway through a rave, I went, you look amazing. You've lost a lot of weight. She said, yes, of course I lost a lot of weight. I listened, you know, I did that thing with, with getting my weight down. And blah, blah, blah. I said, are you happy? I've never been happier. You know, I said, you used to be in an abusive relationship, I remember you telling me. How's that going? He said, oh, I've kicked that bastard out. Um, I've... I've Really, I've made some big changes in my life. And, you know, I've got a man who really loves me now. I've gone, cool. And she's like, but what? And then the penny dropped. Mm. And she's, she's gone, oh, you bastard. <laughs> oh, uh, what's what it is, huh? And she's like, yeah. So you're measuring your success by the wrong yardstick. Mm. You're measuring it by some stupid competition. Um, instead of all the changes that you've made in your life. Yeah. You're amazing. You're wonderful. You've done extraordinary things. Mm. Bank that. Give yourself a medal. Love that. I'll double down on that with the next question is how would you – one tip you'd give to somebody looking to be happier in their life? There's two types of happiness, um, and I'll get all sides on you. Um, it's hedonic happiness, which is moment-to-moment -moment happiness where we're – you know, throughout the course of the day, we fluctuate. Oh, I saw a beautiful butterfly. Oh, it made me feel so happy. And then my neighbour yelled at me over the fence and I was so unhappy. And, and so people do this all day. Yep. Um, the second type of happiness is eudonic. And eudonic is like a baseline of happiness across the course of our life. So the science, as I understand it around this, is that we're all born on a eudonic scale somewhere. And we'll always default to that, and that's very difficult to get away from. Um, you just need to know it about yourself. Right. And so I don't have any interest in hedonic happiness, none at all. Um, I'm, I'm just even it out. I pay no attention to those things. Um, eudonic happiness is, is interesting um, because uh, it, it's more about – I always say to people – you know, I'm always happy. I'm never satisfied. So it's about making fine distinctions. Mm. And, and I think this is true. Uh, um, 
Because there is that I paradox really between that. There is a paradox between the idea of being happy now with the present mm. and being in the moment, mm. and but also being unsatisfied with where you are, which motivates you to to, mm -hmm. to achieve and to mm -hmm. be your potential. Like yep. you go searching for your potential, and there are almost paradoxical concepts. Uh, exactly, concepts it. We're right back at the paradox, thing, yeah. which it makes it interesting. Right, and mm. to your point, do you say I'm I'm happy? Always happy. But not satisfied. And that's maybe that relationship where it's not necessarily a paradox to be able to be happy mm -hmm. with what you have right now mm. and be content. Oh, goodness. How could we not be? We're alive. But not satisfied. Yep. That drives it's, that yeah, forward. Yeah, because there's opportunity. I like so that. Always opportunity. I watched my teacher <clears throat> in his 80s. Uh, this man was the very best in the world at what he did mm. by we always joked, and people who know across the world would joke, there's him, and then two, three, four, and five, between one and two, there's daylight. Mm. There's just, he is a freak. And so I, I looked at him, this freak, still polishing his technique in his 80s, still, still reflecting and going, I think I'm improving this little piece, you know, mm. like, mm. And I would just watch him working on it. And, and so you go, there you go. Never satisfied. Mm -hmm. The next question probably is answers that, is that the most influential person in your life? Ah, I've had the great good fortune to have maybe three or four. Okay. I think my grandfather was where I started mm -hmm. because something about him, he was, he was a, a superior person, if I could say that, um, an extraordinary person in his own self. Um, and then I probably, I'm going to say three teachers beyond that who, who have all been extraordinary men. And so, I've, you know, what are the odds of being able to have um, several people in, in my life who are all just extraordinary? Mm. Uh, and so, you know, I look at them and I go, my gosh, you know, you're in 70s and 80s and you're doing this. You, you are this capable. Mm. And so that's a benchmark that I, I'm just like, I'm looking up and going, okay, I'm not getting any younger, but there's still so much room to grow. Mm. That's inspiring. Uh, second last question is um, your most, your, your favourite book to read or to gift? Mm, that is a very interesting question. I am a massive learner. Um, I've been devouring books since the day I could hold a torch under the covers when I was a kid. <laughs> I mean, literally, I was that kid. Yeah. One of the early books uh, might sound a little, this may sound a little strange to you, but it was Lord of the Rings. Okay. So what I saw in Lord of the Rings was a, um, a way of approaching power and that has stayed with me. So there were two characters in that book that fascinated me. One was Gandalf. You know, very central, a wizard. Um, and the other one was a man, much less in the story, his name was Tom Bombadil. So both these people were the only two people who the ring had no power over. So Gandalf, as a, as a matter of will, it had no power over him mm. and he wanted to rescue the world from the, the evil. Tom Bombadil thought the ring was a toy and he just, it had no no significance to him whatsoever. 
And if the world ended, that had no significance. And, and if a new world started, that had no significance. So I feel like um, what that book gave me was a, um, a perspective. I feel like a, I want to be a combination of those two. Mm. And I want to be able to play effortlessly in the world and, and not, let, not let things have power over me. And at the same time, there's a piece of me that wants to be Gandalf, wants to know I have to do the, my best to um, also help other people. Mm. And so I'm torn between those it's two. paradox again. Yeah, <laughs> really is, really yeah. is. That book for that reason, because it's something about that gave me perspective on my life and my activity. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I read everything that has to do with human potential. I, you know, I've commented before about the Stephen Kotler. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I, I love reading about people, other people, who do extraordinary things, things that you would look at and go, oh, that's impossible. Yeah. Um, because it reinforces to me potential. For sure. And it keeps my eyes up. Mm-hmm. Um, it all too easy to either look in or look down. Yeah. So I want to be looking up. I like that. And finally, um, a guest, famous or otherwise, that you think we should interview? Teacher was alive, I'd say. Put him in front of you. <laughs> Um, mind you, he'd be wanting to swing a sword and show you how yes. all that bit worked. <laughs> There's another um, martial arts teacher um, who's still alive. His name's Shimazu Sensei. Uh, I won't give you the long story about how I met him. I asked him a, a question once. I had an opportunity. You don't have opportunities to ask people like this question. Said, but I had fallen into a space and a, this one opportunity where I could just ask this one man one question and I said, Sensei, would, what advice would you give me? And he'd known me for a day, but he knew my teacher very well. He knew my history. And his advice was cut straight. He'd be a man worth talking to. Yeah. That will be a difficult, difficult interview to arrange. <laughs> but that, that one little beautiful gem has stuck with me. Really, really went in like an arrow. Cut straight. Mm. David Dangerfield, this has been an absolute pleasure. And I am very privileged and thankful for you to come here and share your stories and hopefully uh, help others and inspire others to find their potential. Pleasure. That was David Dangerfield, an incredible human and someone who has so many experiences and ideas around potential and life in general. And that was just such an amazing opportunity and something that I'll remember for a very, very long time. I hope you all got something out of that. And if you did, please share it with people that you think will enjoy it. And if you did like the episode, please, no. Yeah. If you did like this episode and any of the episodes that we do here, please follow and subscribe to wherever you get the podcast from. Uh, It really means a lot to us. So until next time, peace.